The American Cinematographer podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, we're joined by three guests, director B.J. McDonnell and cinematographers Michael Dallatore and Eric Leach to talk about making the Foo Fighters horror comedy Studio 666. It's always kind of fun to give a nod back to true horror fans because sometimes the true horror fans aren't going to want to see a Foo Fighters movie. They might not like the Foo Fighters, who knows? But true horror fans are going to go, oh, The Exorcist. But first, the October 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now with a spotlight on horror filmmaking and a cover featuring The Invitation, shot by Autumn Eakin. It ties into our feature story, Scare Tactics, in which three cinematographers dissect the chilling imagery they created. We've got Eakin for The Invitation, Rob Hardy, ASC, BSC for Men, and Douglas Koch, CSC for Crimes of the Future. The story features an introduction by Michael Goy, ASC, ISC, cinematographer of over 50 spine-tingling episodes of American Horror Story. Also in this issue, ASC member C. Kim Miles shoots the Showtime survivalist series Yellow Jackets, alternating episodes with Trevor Forrest and building upon the pilot shot by Julie Kirkwood. In Nightmare Fuel, ASC cinematographers recall how they created iconic horror imagery for 10 outstanding examples of the genre, including the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and The Descent. And AC explores innovations in virtual production with a behind-the-scenes tour of the turntable LED volume built for the ambitious Netflix series 1899. Also be on the lookout for this month's Shotcraft, where we look at the effects of lighting and composition on dramatic tension. And in new products and services, there's a report on field testing the Airy Alexa 35 with cinematographer James Friend, ASC, BSC. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skill set, this five-day seminar is taught in Los Angeles by top directors of photography. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques and instruction in current workflow practices. Specialized instruction may cover such subjects as commercial product lighting, the use of drones, and virtual production methods. In-person instruction takes place at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. The final in-person session for 2022 will take place on November 7th through the 11th and will have a special focus on shooting motion picture film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now it's time for the interview. In the horror comedy Studio 666, an exaggerated version of the Foo Fighters, played by the band itself, moves into an empty Encino mansion to record their latest album. No sooner have they arrived when a demonic spirit awakens and possesses the soul of lead singer Dave Grohl, who maniacally pushes his bandmates to finish the album and then murders them in a wildly gruesome fashion. Director B.J. McDonnell and cinematographers Michael Dallatore and Eric Leach join us to talk about spooky cinematography, working with famous first-time actors, and a COVID shutdown that threatened to kill the shoot but saved it in the end. Before we begin, I'm going to have each guest introduce themselves so listeners know who's talking. 
Hey guys, I'm BJ McDonald, director of Studio 666. Hey guys, I'm Michael Dellatore. I'm one of the cinematographers for Studio 666. And I'm Eric Leach, and I'm also one of the cinematographers for Studio 666. All right, BJ, I wanted to talk to you as a camera operator who also directs, like approaching the story from that side of things, because everyone approaches their careers from a different perspective, you know? So, you know, we all start from somewhere different and we're all going to different places. You know, so so what's your story? Well, you know, for me, I, when I moved to Los Angeles, it was always too direct. But the thing is, like, when you're a young person and doesn't know any way to go, like, my grandfather was an actor, and, like, that's a whole different story right there. It's like, and he was passed away at the time. And, you know, it's like, there was no, like, ins or outs of family stuff. However, I knew that you could make a living in this business, like, doing, you know, stuff that you love. So I ended up going to film school. I ended up getting out of that, becoming a grip, which is funny. It's where I actually met Eric. We were grips together. I got into gripping, and then I started you know, being a Steadicam operator, then becoming an operator after that point. And it kind of took me off of the path of actually what I came out to do, which was ultimately to direct movies um, or music videos or whatever. However, to me, the knowledge that I've gained as a camera operator has really taught me more about like what to do like as a director, because I've worked with some of the best and some of the worst. I've seen what works. I've seen what doesn't work. It's taught me the set etiquette. It's also taught me what gear is going to work, how to do time management for like what, you know, if we're going to do this over here and I need this makeup effect over here, I know that's going to take four hours to get the makeup on. So we're going to go shoot this over here and talking to like, oh, this crane will work better than that crane. You know, it just, it gives you a knowledge of like everybody's job on set because you've been in the mix of it all. You're directly, you know, you're directly working with actors and the directors of the movies as a camera operator and the DPs. So you kind of get a well-rounded ultimate film school from being on set as a camera operator, which once I started trying to refocus back to directing, I feel like that actually gave me so much more of like, you know, the knowledge of, and the tools of what I needed when I started to direct films. So ultimately, it's the best film school ever. Ever. Do you consider yourself a camera operator who directs or a, a, ca- a director who sometimes operates a camera? No, I mean, for me, it's like, I know my position and which role I ever take. So if I'm a camera operator, I'm a camera operator. And if I talk to the guys directly, I'll say, hey, look, you know, I think this is cool, but it's up to you. It's not in my hands. I don't get precious because you have to let those kind of intentions go and say, you know, look, look, I'm the camera operator here. I'm working, you know, with the director of photography and the director to do my job and I'll throw out ideas. They want them. If they don't, great. I'm doing that job. As a director, the hardest thing for me, and I think Mike and Eric both probably can see, and I still have trouble, is, is I, I obsess over a certain shot sometimes or I'll, or I'll want it, you know, this one thing, you know, and it's like that. But then I need to let go and let the guys do their vision also because sometimes, like, I'm not always the be-all, end-all, and I know that they're going to find better shots or better compositions you know, than I'm sitting there thinking because sometimes you get wrapped up in it. That's where it's hard for me when I'm a director is letting go of framing and things like that. But I, I've learned now that, that it's easier for me to just like trust who I have. And that way uh, I can focus more on the performance. And I mean, I know Mike and Eric probably a couple of times probably wanted to strangle me, but you know, it's hard to, it's hard to teach a old dog new tricks, I guess. So <laughs> even after Studio 666, uh, you've continued to work as an operator. Do you plan on making the jump to full-time directing? Of course, of course, I'd love to take that jump, but it's also, look, I'm 20 years in of camera operating, you know, and it's like, if, if the directing thing took off, rad, awesome. I'm still a camera operator and I'm still down to do camera operating jobs. I have all those hours I've accumulated for retirement and I still want those. And if I can get both, well, then so be it. But, it, you know, I don't, I don't look at myself as like, I am this now, you know, cool. Like I'm, I'm totally down for either job. 
What do directing and camera operating have in common? You're telling a story through camera movement. That's what I think is a big importance to being a camera operator as well as a director, because you want to you want to tell a story not only through dialogue, but also through what's going on in the camera and in the lens itself. You talked about letting go of the camera, giving control of it over to your cinematographers. Can can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, that, and that's the thing. You have to actually let go and let the people you hired, you have to trust what they're going to do, you know, and really like, I always go up to Mike or Eric and say like, what do you think, man? Like, do, should we do this or should we do that? You know, like I'm always, I always want the input there of what I'm trying to like explain through the camera work. I mean, there's, there's always like, you always have an idea what you want to do, but sometimes, like I said, it's always easier if all of a sudden, you know, Eric or Mike, they see something, they go, what if we did this? And you go, oh, that's an awesome idea. Yeah, of course, let's do that. It's all teamwork at that point. Like, I, I think it's better to collaborate with the people you're around. That, that goes not even just with the DPs, it goes with the rest of the crew. I think you get better results when you're surrounding yourself with people that you can honestly trust. And you have to, you have to really get all the people that are going to do the right job around you. And we've learned recently, it really takes the right people. So between Mike and Eric, who started the film and who finished it? Yeah, so I, I started the show, got a, you know, got a call from my agent saying, what's up with this? There's a Foo Fighters movie. You want to meet the director like this afternoon? And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Read the script super fast. And I think we literally met like that afternoon or something like that. And uh, because they were moving quick, I think the band had just finished recording the album at that house. Yeah. And they were like, okay, we got two weeks and a half of prep or something like that. And it was like, oh, shit. You know, I met BJ. Funny enough, I'd never met BJ, even though I worked at Panavision for 18 years. Maybe I saw him come in and out, prep his gear real quick and then leave. But uh, we had never been uh, formally introduced. Eric, I've met many times before. And yeah, we hit it off. I mean, I think um, going back to what you were talking about, I did have a few concerns. And one of my concerns was, are the rock stars going to be rock stars and like tell us to screw off or come in at like four hours after call and then we're going to have to rush through stuff, uh, which that was alleviated. They they were super solid. They were literal rock stars. They came in and they they hung out. They waited for everything. We, we, we never were like waiting on somebody to show up or anything like that and didn't get any attitudes from any of the guys. And then my other little concern was like, can BJ let go of the camera, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he did, which was great. Cause he was also like, he was like my go-to, like if I needed another little thing, I knew he could pull it out, but he was leaning on me to bring more to the table. That was great because he could concentrate on making sure uh, the band was feeling comfortable and then the action was happening right. What did we have? Like originally it was supposed to be 27 days, 26 days. It was 27 days that we originally had for it. And in, we, in we it would have been impossible. Yeah, yeah. So we got shut down on day 20 for COVID. And at that point, the rest of what we were supposed to shoot was like, how are we supposed to shoot this in seven days? Um, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's how it started. I really enjoyed BJ's enthusiasm. The funny thing is that, that everyone was like, we know we were going to have a good time, but we also were like, we got to make this great. We're going to make this as good as possible because for us, it's like, even I've heard David, Dave say it, they didn't think we were going to come in like all these crazy professionals doing like no. the best job possible. And like everyone that came in was like trying to make something solid and not, not just fucking around and saying like, oh, we're just, we're goofing around with the Foo Fighters. It's like, no, we're, we're going to make something cool. We're going to make something fun. We knew what it was. There was no pretensions of like, oh, this is going to be whatever awards or this and that or blah, blah, blah. Like we weren't trying you know, to win Oscars. I mean, we'll, we'll get a couple of Razzies maybe, but you know what? They're, they're well-deserved. <laughs> I'll take a Razzie. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> BJ, what is it about Mike's work that made you want to work with him? I saw that you and Eric had worked together before, so there was some history there. Idea, like, like in the beginning, I, I went to Eric and I said, hey, dude, I've got this movie. 
you know, and, and it's coming up. Eric got a really great opportunity to be the director of photography on SEAL team, which was really a good, you know, jump for Eric. And I was like, look, man, don't think you have to like turn down that opportunity to come do this movie. Cause you never know. You never know where features are going to go. You get a solid TV show. You're going with the solid TV show. And I was kind of like, well, shit, who am I going to talk to? And then I ended up watching some movies and you know, like we were throwing ideas around and I happened to stumble upon Brightburn. And as I'm watching Brightburn, I'm just watching like the cinematography. I thought it was really, really well done. And actually, I don't even think Mike's name was up at that point for, for this yet. Actually, I think we had just watched it and I forgot who said, but they said, Hey, check out, you know, this guy, Mike D, you know, Mike Delatore. And I was like, okay. And, and I looked on the resume. I was like, well, shit, he did Brightburn. So I was like, get him in here. So you know, I was making sure he wasn't a, a, a total jerk because, you know, you, you don't you never want to work with with assholes. So uh, Mike was not an asshole. So we were very fortunate for that. <laughs> and, he, and I really like the fact I like the planning. Mike is very meticulous about the planning of things. And, and, and when I would get we would talk about stuff. And when I would get home, he'd send spreadsheets of the things that we already did that would show everything that we talked about, and like just kind of like a really nice layout of like, what we were going to use, what kind of lighting, just a really good game plan. That's how, and that's how that whole thing came about. You know, so we, me and Mike, we went to the trenches. We're having a great time. You know, one horribly stormy, rainy night when we're shooting the end of the movie, the world shuts down and we're like, well, it could be a week, two weeks, cut to seven months later. We uh, ended, ended up like coming back. However, Mike D was up for another show at that point because so much time had passed. And so me and Mike D talked it over and Mike's like, look, I'm going to go with this other job just because it's a big deal. And then I was like, okay. And then I talked to Eric. I was like, are you going back to SEAL Team? What's happening? And SEAL Team wasn't happening. So Eric came back into the fold. Eric, did you and Michael get a chance to talk before the handoff? We had a lot of more conversation just like in terms of like what had been shot and how it had been going. Because, you know, I went and scouted the location early on too. And I remember, and I'm sure Mike did the same thing when he saw it. First thing I was like, this is a logistical nightmare here. Because it was just the way, the lay of the land. It was all on a hill. It was this massive house. It was hard. Nothing was really accessible from like, when you look at it from a lighting standpoint, everything you want to do is next to impossible or you just don't have time. And that was the biggest problem. You know, you're doing a small movie. We're not doing a hundred million dollar movie where you just can spend all night for one shot. You know, we had to go. Yeah. It was more challenging even with COVID stuff because then all of a sudden all the protocols and the stuff you go on a set and you're so used to things and you show up and it's like, only three people can be on this set at once. One grip and one electrician and a props guy. Like, okay, yeah. but I got to get out while they do the work. It was really hard to adapt to that because in the back of your head, all you're thinking is, you know, your plan of attack is based on what was seven months prior to COVID. A little, it was very overwhelming to say the least because it was like, you have to deal with that on top of trying to make the night. And, you know, we shot mostly nights too, I think. So it was, we, what we did back to your question. Yes, we did talk and just to see like what, what had been done and what worked and they filmed quite a bit. And thankfully he kind of went through the growing pains of the location. Like, well, this isn't work or this isn't work or, and I mean, the hills were steep. It wasn't like these little rises. I mean, it was like where the pool area was all the way to the top of the house was like, it was a good hump and, you know, pushing carts and all that, you know, everything you just see it. You're just like, wow. Yeah. And luck and luckily we had um, a lot of crew came. We were able to come back like our gaffer, Jesse Jorchowski, who actually, uh, Eric, you went to school with him, right? Yeah. Uh, they went to Columbia College. And actually we found out, BJ and I found out that we both went to LACC at the same yeah. time, <laughs> but didn't know each other. Um, so but, weird. 
Yeah, but having the guys that had already been there knew the lay of the land. I talked to the best boy at the this last screening, and he said his best day was thirty five thousand steps, and that was the best boy. So it's crazy, you know. Yeah, we all left out of there much better cardio, in better cardio shape than everything. But and then it was just more of just kind of being prepared of like what's going to happen. By that point, we had like a nice little like teaser trailer too, so we kind of knew what was going on. We had something that Eric was really able to continue, and then it's to me it's seamless, which is great. Yeah, both Eric and, and and Mike both like you know the the transition like the the lighting and everything like it it really is seamless which is really great because sometimes you can kind of tell. So when production started back up, were you able to get more days added to the schedule? Yeah, because we didn't know what the protocols were going to be. We literally had like what seven days left, something like that, guys. Yeah, like, seven. We were basically like, okay, so from going from twelve hour days to now, it's like it's ten. That's it. We didn't know how testing was going to go, how long it was going to take to get through things. Like no, we were the guinea pigs of you know post COVID coming back to work. We were still figuring it out, so we had to add you know more days. So we eventually came back like you know for about three weeks, three weeks, yeah. right? I remember thinking like, wow, but I also think like what you guys had left, it was too big. a lot more time that was scheduled because. Me and Mike would like, never been crazy. You start thinking about it, like, I don't know how you guys would have ever finished it. So basically, was- the pool sequence in the movie, for a movie like that, it was really massive. And I think what they wanted, what was it they wanted to shoot, like, two days? Like, maybe, it was, it, it was like barely two days to finish that yeah. whole scene. It was two days to do the whole pool with, I think you guys got shot, like, a week? A week. five days? Yeah, so it was quite a bit. Yeah. That's with like stunt rigging. And there's yeah. like, we were planning on like, okay, if the rig has to stay up, which way can we shoot while well, they break the rig down yeah. or they break the rig down and the next day we shoot the other direction because I was like, in two days, how do we do it? There's no way we would have been able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Let's just be honest. I mean, honestly, yeah. like, I guarantee had the pandemic not happened, me and, and Mike would have been like, well. We would ask for a couple more days, maybe. Yeah, we would have had to be like, there would have been a meeting. <laughs> as they say so yeah that's you know luckily when we came back and everyone knew it was going to take a lot more time that is how we actually got it there was a lot of moving parts eric how much time was devoted to protocol like did it did it slow you down no because no. we were filming nights primarily in august and the nights were fairly short still and the way they had the testing set up like we'd roll in it was it monday wednesday friday or something like that and we roll into the parking lot and they're like the first time I ever had a COVID test, like they hand me a cup in a parking lot. I'm like, what the hell is this for? And they're like, like you got to spit in this cup. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, what? Yeah, what? Yeah, I got to pee in this cup in my car. Like what? But no, it was, uh, it, it was the cups. We had to spin the cups and, and then they would shuttle us up to the set and probably were, everything was pretty well organized and put together. So we knew what we were going to do and the guys would come in and we'd do it. And then we moved to the next bit. And it was, you know, cause did we even break for lunch? I don't even remember. I don't think no, we, we didn't broke break for lunch more just because we knew we had to keep going. It was basically just like went through it. And oh, shockingly yeah. to me, I think, and BJ, you probably feel the same way. I don't think I've been on a set where it was like really kind of like, okay, we went in for 10 hours. We did what we need to do. Everybody was on point. Everybody was like clocked in. We're going to yeah. do X, Y, and Z. And here it is. Well, yeah, you, we didn't walk in and go, what are we going to do? Let's I mean, talk about it for five hours and then we would talk about it forever. And you just sit there and watch the clock tick, tick, tick. I mean, that's yeah. even from the get go from the first part with Mike. I try, I tried my best to make sure I had shot lists down because I knew I had six guys that aren't actors. And we, you know, we had to make sure that we could get 
every single thing we needed because we had to cover every single guy. Just doing that alone just takes a lot of time. And as Mike knows, it's like, okay, as soon as I saw what we needed, I was like, we're moving on. And it was literally one or two takes. And I'd be like, moving on. As soon as, as, soon as we had something that I thought was going to be, that was good. You know, unfortunately you have to balance that time schedule and it carried over into even post COVID, like got all the things shot listed and everything and storyboarded. You know, I felt like all in all from the, from the beginning with Mike and also with Eric, I think that we had a very tight ship. We all came in, we knew what we had to do. We all knew there was no time to bullshit around that we needed to go, 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 but also keep a perfect look of a, of a feature film. Okay, so let's talk about shooting the band and and the challenges of working with a big ensemble of non-actors. I knew that we're not dealing with professionally trained actors. Even like, hey, we got to make sure you hit your mark. Or if you're holding this in your right hand, make sure with the next take, you're not holding it in your left hand. That was a bit of a learning curve for them. So I knew that I would need to get at least the white sauce, but I needed things to be able to cut away to just in case something didn't line up. That's why I felt I needed to cover every single band member to make sure we had every moment that was in the script and that we weren't locked into something. Yeah, it was like, okay, let's see. Everyone's in the scene. How do we not make it Dave talking to the band or like the same thing? So every single time we covered, we were trying to cover them. We're like, how do we do this differently? How do we come into the room that we've been in half the freaking movie again, yeah. figuring out without doing that? And, you know, sometimes Tom would hit and would like, okay, cool, just cross shoot people. And it was like, this is the only way we're going to get out of this. Six guys... I mean, the, the song we were performed, the, what was the actual length of that song it was like 11 minutes, 12 minutes, 12 minutes long. So we would do some takes of the whole song and it's like, all right, we got to move on. But then, you know, our operators were awesome. We found we were able to find cool shots and keep it fresh without it feeling like the same shots every single time and this looking the same direction every single time. And that made it challenging, but I think it was a good creative thing because when I look at it, I'm like, oh, great. That nothing looks the same to me. The hardest thing about that room is just a four wall room. You know what I mean? Everywhere the instrument is, you're always going to have a band member at that place. And so I was always like, we got to always try to keep this looking different because they're not going to move away from where their amps are or you know, Taylor's not going to get up and move his drum somewhere else. Now, it'd be weird for us to reset like, oh, they moved all their gear around because that never happens. Like I come from a band background. And once you find your spot, you're in your spot. Also, with, when we did uh, color correction, Eric did a little bit of tweaking in some of those scenes, too, to make it feel like it was a different time of day. So not only with Mike D trying to like get the different angles, but we also tried to make it feel a little bit different lighting wise in certain areas, like in color correction. So it felt like a different you know, part of the day. Eric, would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of like putting it how the edit was and like look at it time of day, scenes proceeding and following and just kind of like, okay, well, as much as it does get different, you do find yourself kind of in the same areas at the same time because Taylor's at the drums and Dave's standing there talking to him. You could have just been like, yeah, we'll just make it all like this flat across the, you know, the color could be whatever or whatever. When you cut from a scene prior to that where it's like clearly it's sunny and different time of day and then you come in there and kind of just kind of let it transition itself into the evening and then back into the day again or whatever. So it doesn't feel like the same thing. And also I think kind of keeping with the mood of the film as it gets progressively darker because, you know, when you first come in there, it's a little different vibe than what it is by the time Taylor gets his, uh, yeah. Half. yeah. <laughs> Visually speaking, much of the film is, is played pretty straight. Like the world of the band is pretty normal looking and, and that makes the horror elements really stand out. No, totally. And, and, and like, again, when we first started getting into this, we always knew that it was more about the comedy aspect of it first. And not that we were trying to light it like, like and I told Mike and Eric, like when we were talking about, it's like, I don't want this to be lit like a comedy. Like we need to try, the main tone of the whole thing from the get go was just let's, let's make it a consistent looking movie. 
let the comedy play out. That's the Foo Fighters kind of style of like their, of how they act towards each other in the dialogue. Let that be the comedy. Let's just keep this more like, let's legitly make this look like a movie that shouldn't be with this kind of humor. You know what I mean? Um, Cause like we've all worked on the comedy movies and I was like, Oh, brighter, you know, is better. Like the wider the lens is funnier. This is like, no, no, let's just treat this like an actual horror film, you know, and just light it properly and make it look as best as we can with that. Let's talk about influences. Like this movie really comes across uh, not just as an homage, but a love letter to horror movies. For me, it's like, you know, we knew we were making a movie with the Foo Fighters to be funny. And we knew it was going to be bloody and gory. So that's going to have its own touch to it. But it's always kind of fun to give a nod back to true horror fans. Because sometimes the true horror fans aren't going to want to see a Foo Fighters movie. They might not like the Foo Fighters. Who knows? But true horror fans are going to go, oh, the exorcist, the, the shadow people that are in the movie. It's the fog. The book is the Necronomicon. And Eric, like when we reveal the book, you know, it was so cool because we had the smoke and the drain and all that stuff. And it was like that big epic moment when they finally find the book, which is completely a rip off Sam Raimi's you know, <laughs> Necronomicon book from Evil Dead 2. Why not? You know, there's a lot of little like throwback kind of things in there. And like, it's funny because someone goes, was, was when Dave coming out of the pool, like sort of like Friday the 13th, it's like not the kid and the mom in the boat, but it's like it, it is that slow-mo shot of Dave coming up out of the water. You know, we we referenced a lot of things that we wanted to get, like even the scene with Rami and, and Whitney with the blood. My main goal right now is to try to like beat Wes Craven and and beat Nightmare on Elm Street 1 with Johnny Depp in the bed. Obviously, I don't think we beat it because that's an amazing shot still to this day. I, I still am like, that's so awesome. I mean, there was a camera above the huge. bed too that got obliterated as soon as that thing, I mean, it was like, you see the shot, you're like, oh, that's cool. And I'm, as soon as it started, it was gone. It was like, and then it just started dripping off the, I mean, you could see it in the, in the daylight. It's kind of funny, but I don't think you used the shot. The overhead shot never even got into it. That overhead shot is not in the movie because it got completely destroyed. Right. I mean, as soon as it, as soon as that thing exploded, it just went, boom, it was just red and gone. But we did eventually use the final shot of the scene. No, that's right. Yeah. The one that got obliterated. I remember it was pretty funny because we're just like, eh, yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. It's like we, when we did that shot with Will Forte, you know, the delivery guy. Yeah. And that was you, Mike. We had that gag was about, it had to have like six people to make it right. Oh yeah. And, and, and they were all in the shot. We had to do a plate shot. And it was crazy because right as, right before we went, they were like, three, two, because like that had to hold the body up and the guy and everything. I mean, there were six people in that shot. They go, three, two, one. And on one, all the effects artists had to dive out of the way to try to get away from like that thing so they weren't crossing it for the for the shot. And then the head blows up and everything like that. But it was just funny, like seeing how, how many people it took to get that effect to work. All right. So how does this approach extend to the look of the film? Yeah, I mean, guys, I mean, I could, I could just say, like, I think, you know, before these guys answer, I just always went to it as I wanted to look like a bigger film than it really was, but also kind of keeping the horror vibe and a bit of texture, like I wanted to have a more Super 16 kind of feel. So it is, it is, it still pays homage to the old 80s horror, because it's, it's not, this movie's not hereditary, and it's not like The Witch, it's not like that deep, meaningful horror, which I love those kind of movies. This one's more Friday the 13th. I mean, so it needed to have that kind of old school 80s, you know, not just the tone and the vibe of the way it should look. And that's why, you know, I felt like the Super 16 kind of grainy texture feel would be perfect for it. And I just said, hey, guys, I want to make this very cinematic and and not what the guys would think of just people running around with camcorders making a movie. This needed to be an actual legit movie. Yeah, I mean, I'd say for me, I had just come off shooting Books of Blood, which was more of a psychological thriller. And then before that was Brightburn, which to me was very much a slasher movie. So it, it almost becomes very instinctual 
that sense of threat and sense of tension. When we were in the house with BJ, we'd be like, hey, we could start here. And then it's a slow push into this. And that will create this tension. For us, it was great because it was it was very much one of those, that's cool. And we could do this. And it became very much one of those things where like when you when you're really able to click with other people, the ideas, they're not like like a solitary or like a singular idea. Like all the pieces start connecting. And that's that's what was happening. You know, and this, there's a lot of them, the shots in the movie. They're actually like longer shots, which we re- later realized actually worked out really well for us because sometimes not seeing what's going to kill you is more scarier than seeing what's going to kill you. The whole Jaws thing. And it was great because also it was it was very much because we were able to play in the sense that we were able to experiment with things and not worry about like, well, that's going to be stupid or the studio is not going to like that. We didn't, that's the one thing we didn't have. We didn't have like a like a, a studio studio at that time on our backs to say, well, I, we can't show that. No, we're going to do this. And that's and that's the only option you're going to get. Does anyone have an example of a crazy idea that worked out? I mean, there was a lot, actually. <laughs> There are a lot of things that I typically like on studio projects. I was like, oh, they're not going to let us do that. And they did. I mean, everything from, from chopping Will Forte's head off and making that that is that scene just kind of very dark and, and mysterious to even just like like the band stuff, like going back to coverage. It's like, oh, it's coverage. But it also we were trying to be very purposeful with the stuff as opposed to just being like, just get the coverage because you want. I was able to take the time. Definitely the funnest kill for me uh, was Taylor's. Yeah, it was both practical, visual and and just developing that scene and the tension within that scene. So those are, I think that's a good example of one. Oh, that's the one with. Well, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it, it has something to do with the uh, with the drums. Yep. <laughs> Symbol. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. Eric, um, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think going back to like, I guess I was I was listening there my because actually i'm not not three of us have never really actually sat down and been like yeah, i know not the shit about it so i'm kind of like really oh yeah okay and i totally forgot what i was going to say just going way back when you talk about like the homage and stuff too and like one thing that sticks out is when we did the caretaker and i remember when he stands up at the pool and he takes that hat out and he flips that hat out and yeah. i think about this one time this other movie that bj and i did where we did another shot where a guy with a glove flips his glove out and it was like a very impactful thing it was super cool and my, you know, when you see him do it, you're like, oh, we should start. Why don't we start on his hat? He flips the hat out and then we'll follow it up. And just before he puts it on, we cut to the back of his head and he puts it on. And it's like this big hulking guy. And everybody's like, what the hell is going on with this blob just turning? You know, like what's going on here? And also during that whole scene too, just thinking of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Imitation is a form of flattery. And sometimes you see stuff that you really, that sticks with you from way back. You know, like, I always love that. I think it's great. And that, you know, those are the movies that you grow up with and you kind of build your palette on things that really like stood the test of time with you. Right, that Raiders scene you're talking about is the one where, where they open the arc. Yeah, That's right. Like- and yeah. We went to Jim's house with his pool and we had the puppeteers with the skull heads and the fabric draped and we were in a pool and they filmed it and they ended up using those as elements. So you kind of see it like that was based off of an actual element. That wasn't a computer. Well, as far yeah. as I know. No, no. I mean, they enhanced it. But like when we were talking about how we're going to get these spirits to go around, I always was like, you know, dude, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark is so awesome. And for that time when they made those, it's amazing. So we literally ripped it off. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we, 
because they shot a lot of it like they like the, the spirit and raiders coming up and yelling that's obviously an actress but yeah. like the other spirits going around they had these puppets with these dangly like white cloth things that they put in a pool and moved it around and like kind of a cloud tank kind of a deal and that's i mean honestly we just full-on ripped it off we're like oh, let's go to and our buddy jim who's the producer had he had a he has a swimming pool with a window and so the guy and we just set the camera up and did every single shot so the the ghost would fly like in relative relation to each shot we got enough elements to do that and that's how we actually created that whole sequence so all of these visual references that you know we've just talked about you know they they work a little bit like like shorthand don't they right for for people who know and speak the same visual language yeah i mean me and bj have known each other for like 20 years so we've worked on a lot of same movies together operating and all the stuff we've done together and we've had a lot of hours sitting around talking to each other about like what we like with this and that so it's a little like I think that the content of the movie itself, based on who is around, I think it attracts those kind of people that are interested in that kind of content. They want to do this. When people come to the set, they're like, see what we're doing today? They're going to saw somebody in half with this chainsaw rig that comes out of the bed. And blood, you know, you're like, what? I love my job. This is awesome. You know what I mean? And I think there's certain types of people that can come to work and appreciate that and appreciate Will Forte taking eight guys to get his head chopped off, you know, because... Most people go, well, that's just ridiculous. But I personally, and I know the, the other two guys too here, we're all sitting here going, yeah, but that's pretty awesome. I saw that Dave Grohl has a story credit. Uh, was he or anyone else in the band um, involved in the filmmaking process, you know, other than you know, being in the movie? I mean, that's the thing. It's like Dave really, he trusted us. Like he would like, we were like, all right, here's what we're doing, Dave. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, he's like, oh, that's awesome. You know, whatever. He was like totally into it. He never was. Well, no, I think this should do this or that. He wasn't that kind of guy at all. He actually put all of his trust in everything that we were all doing right there. Uh, because I think he realized also that we weren't just like a bunch of dudes that, had just bought red cameras and decided we were going to make a movie. He actually realized that everybody that was there on the set actually has a has a resume and that we had like a lot of really great people that were making films. So he really put his trust into all of us with what this project was. And and uh, he listened to everything we had to say. And, you know, he basically gave us free reign to like direct, shoot everything, like what we had to do. He put it all in there. I got him drinking Rockstar energy drinks, which is probably bad. So... <laughs> You know, we all get, we all got to kind of be creative in this movie. I think that we all, every one of us, you know, me, you know, Mike, Eric, the whole rest of the crew, like even down to, you know, costumes and things, we, everybody got a chance to put their finger on this project and show the work that they can do. And I think everyone is pretty proud of it. Yeah. And the whole band was the same way. Like I remember talking to Taylor and Pat one time when they were watching one of the shots that we, I think we did with Dave. And I remember Pat going, dude, did you guys like, he, it was like the first time he looked at the monitor, like it was like oh, yeah. week two or something like that. Yeah. And he was like, dude, that looks so good. And it was like, yeah, what, what the fuck you think we're doing? Like <laughs> making a movie. And we keep saying play and do all this stuff like that. We didn't have that much money. And no. it's hard to play when you don't have a lot of money. What it does is I feel for me, it makes me more creative. And what is it? Yeah, you know, we figure things out a little bit. Okay, well, we can't do that. This actually turns out to be cooler, we can, you know, and and that's kind of where coming from a couple bigger films to a smaller film that wants to be in that realm of those other films, it's like, oh, I know how to do that now. Yeah. I don't need all these big things, but I can I can achieve that. And sometimes you're like, well, we can't do that because that's not going to work. So let's figure something else out that's, that still gives us the emotion and the tone that we want, but we can afford. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like the first day we were supposed to try to have a shot with a techno crane and we got like totally canned on that one. <laughs> of course, the shot did not work, no. uh, but we had to wait. We figured it out later on. We did it again and we did it. It was fine. But it was like, if, had we had the crane and the gear we wanted, we would have knocked it right out and gone. 
like straight ahead. But that was just kind of the example, of like the, the kind of struggles we were up against with getting the certain things that we needed to get to get and achieve certain shots that we, yeah. you know, that we, we, but we got it. I mean, the thing is, yeah. we got it. and again, saying like how Eric was saying, the house was like, it's like four tiers. It's on the side of a hill and all the windows are facing the hill where typically we would just even just put a light on a stand outside the window. You couldn't because there was a 30 foot drop. Yeah. And you couldn't put a condor there because it was on the second tier and the lower tier. You couldn't get a condor in because it just was a, a hedged driveway. Even if you wanted to do a basic thing like a light outside the window, it just was. So you just didn't put lights outside those windows. Correct. Either that or we menace armed them out just enough to get us up out and over. But a lot of places where I wanted, I'd always be like, that's where I want the light. And it's like, OK, that's not happening. That's a hundred foot drop. The hundred foot drop. So there were a few times I remember walking like, can we put, oh, wait, no, we can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's not going to work. <laughs> BJ, you said something about wanting the picture to have like a vintage film-like quality. Was shooting on film ever an option? I mean, honestly, we knew we needed like, we needed to shoot digitally. So I could say, do we have that? Let's just look and see if we have that. We can go, boop. Okay, cool. We got it. You know, that's the one great thing I think is about digital. fantastic. Um, it was more about the glass that we were using but knowing that when we were going to color the movie that we were going to add more of a 16 millimeter kind of super 16 grain to this, make it more of like that kind of a feel. And so and, I really relied on the lenses and the lighting and things that I knew that we were going to have properly in place going into knowing that when we colored it, we were going to enhance it a little bit. Yeah. And I kind of haven't been at Panavision for a, such a long time and spent countless hours with Dan Sasaki screwing around with lenses and testing some of his prototypes. I kind of like knowing that BJ wanted that look, I went for a lens that was going to give us a little more contrast so that when you did add the noise and the grain, it pops a little bit more. And then we also needed the speed a lot of times. Some of those areas at the house were just very difficult to, to light. So we actually ended up doing the Panavision Zeiss Super Speeds with uh, Aria Alexa. I basically just used the same light I used from Brightburn. <laughs> Mike, what did you uh, do at Panavision? Well, I started in shipping. Then I was on the prep floor for probably like nine years. And then I was in marketing as the new filmmaker program manager. That was my side job. And the real <laughs> on weekends and, and everything like that, that's when I was shooting. So, you know, that was just paying the bills, but it was great. It, it very supportive people there, very much my, my family. And I still go there. I think every project I've shot has been a Panavision project. So, well, guys, thanks so much for taking the time to hang out and talk about your work on the movie. It's been a lot of fun to hear all the cool stories from the set. Yeah. Yo, thanks for having us. Honestly, yeah. was, I was stoked when you reached out. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah thank you. That was director BJ McDonald and cinematographers Michael Dallatore and Eric Leach talking about the making of Studio 666. A complete transcript is available in the show notes at theasc.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. For our latest content and exclusive behind the scenes photos and videos, Follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Vimeo, and Twitter. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including cinematographer profiles, reprints of articles from vintage issues, more podcasts, new products and services, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. Theasc.com. This episode was mixed by Rob Grannis and recorded in part at Brickshop Audio in New York City. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.